Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal RX. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years' experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Continuing with our tribute to Stephen Booner, today's podcast recording is all about viral infections. This was recorded in 2015, before the recent pandemic hit, and Stephen predicted that there would be more and more emerging and re-emerging viruses, and as we've recently witnessed, he was correct. Stephen shares invaluable information regarding herbal antivirals, information that is relevant to every naturopath and herbalist in this ever-changing climate of viral infections. So I'm going to talk a little bit about emerging viruses and um, the great plants that can be used for treating them. Now, pretty much everybody noticed that in 2014, Ebola kind of emerged out of Africa and hit both Europe and the United States for the first time and caused quite a bit of widespread panic. And that's just an example of one of the emerging viruses that potentially are in our future. But there's quite a bit of them out there, and there's more of them that are going to be showing up all of the time. Uh, another one, for instance, is Enterovirus 68, which shows up about every three to five years. And every time it shows up, there's an exponentially larger number of people that are infected. This time when it hit the U.S., there were about 11 or 12,000 children that became quite sick with it. So next time it hits, three to five years from now, we're probably looking at 30 or 40 or even 50,000 children that will be affected. So the fascinating thing is that herbal antivirals are really good for treating a lot of these diseases. So probably the most famous viral infection that everybody knows about is influenza. Another one is the group of viruses that cause encephalitis. It's really interesting. Viruses are a bit different than bacteria. They have actually two really interesting functions in the world. One of them is that they intermingle all of the genetic structures on the planet, and they're quite often spread by mosquitoes. So when a mosquito bites somebody, they'll inject a virus into their bloodstream. And when the virus goes in there, it'll quite often, besides making you sick, it'll snip off a little bit of your DNA. And then when it's picked up by a mosquito again, it goes. And then when that mosquito bites another living organism, that virus goes in and weaves that DNA structure into their genome. So actually, we have plant DNA in our genome, animal DNA of various sorts, reptile DNA. It's a, a way for the genetic codes of all of the life organisms on Earth to be interblended. And the second thing viruses do is they protect ecosystems from disruption. So, for instance, you'll have viruses that are um, co-evolutionary partners with certain um, monkeys in certain eco-ranges, and they don't get sick from the virus. But if a competing monkey species comes in, a certain number of those viruses will jump into the new species, and they cause an extremely quick-acting cancer, which will kill off the invading species, sort of protect their hosts and the ecosystem. What happens is human population increases, and we begin moving into more and more pre previously pristine 
eco ranges is as the viruses begin to jump into us and they cause more and more disease, this is not something that's going to stop. The problem is, of course, that Western technology isn't very good at treating viruses. Everybody's heard of antibiotics. Pretty much everybody on Earth has heard of penicillin. There really are no antivirals in the pharmaceutical armamentarium that are as well known. They just don't really get viruses in the same way. And the kind of approach that has been used for over a century has been to create vaccines for viruses so that they just don't affect us. But when we get a viral infection, there's a couple of antivirals that are normally used. They're only marginally effective. They have a fair amount of side effects and they're quite different and um, just less effective than plant antivirals. I got interested in plant antivirals probably 15 years ago when I was attending a um, herbal conference in Oregon, the Brighton Bush Herbal Conference, one of the oldest in the United States, and the great American herbalist Michael Moore was there, and he's on a panel, and he happened to say, well, of course, there's very few herbal antivirals, and then he just stopped, and he kind of looked up, and I just saw this light bulb go on in his head, and right then I knew he'd started thinking of herbal antivirals in a completely new way and that really sparked me to begin looking at herbal antivirals which this new book really goes into in depth because they're extremely effective for viral diseases. Now I separate herbal antivirals into three groups broad spectrum antivirals, moderately broad spectrum and then narrow spectrum antivirals and with these, you can pretty much do just about anything, treat just about any kind of condition you get. As if you also then treat the symptoms or protect the organs that are also being affected. But herbal antivirals are extremely good, especially the broad spectrum ones, at stopping viral replication, stopping viral penetration of human cellular structures, and really reducing a lot of the problems that viruses can cause when we get sick. So I'll talk a bit about broad-spectrum antivirals first. Now I think probably one of the most potent ones is Chinese skullcap root, Scutellaria baculensis. It's the root that's used. Now the fascinating thing about this is that probably probably most of the skullcap species in the world, they were, well, just a, a side note, they were separated geographically for a very long time. Um, the American skullcaps, the North American skullcaps are very different. However, most likely the roots of most of the skullcap species can be used interchangeably. However, very little research has been done on that. The greatest depth research has been on the Chinese skullcap root, Scutellaria baculensis, and the Chinese have done great stuff with it. Now it's the root that's used. The root is generally dried first and then tinctured, but it is very, very broad spectrum. It's active against a phenomenally wide range of viruses. It inhibits the viruses from penetrating cells. It's directly viricidal. It prevents viral release from cells because the virus 
Viruses generally go into a cell, they co-opt the cellular machinery, they make more of themselves, and then the, the cell bursts open and all these new viruses are released into the system. That's called virin release, and so this herb stops the release of those into the system, protects the cell from the viruses getting in there, and if they are in there, it stops their replication. It's a very, very nice herb. Now, one of the things that viruses do to do their work in a system that they've infected is they're extremely good at modulating the cytokines in the body that they've infected. And now cytokines are small cellular signaling molecules that cells often release if they're being infected. And that tells the immune system in the body how to respond to the infection. So viruses are a kind of stealth pathogen and I'll go into stealth pathogens in the next video in some more depth, but what they do is they hide inside human cells and they modulate that cytokine release. Bacal skullcap is probably one of the best cytokine modulators that exists. It's, it's a normalizer of cytokine production. So if cytokine production is reduced, then it raises it. If it's elevated, it brings it back down. It's extremely remarkable for that. Now, I'll talk more about Th1 and Th2 dynamics in the next video, but Th1, these are um, T helper cells. They're a kind of a white blood cell that are made in the thymus and the tonsils. You didn't have your tonsils out, did you? If you did, your T cells aren't as good. But the thing is, now, these T helper cells, there's a number of different categories, Th1, Th2, and so on. Now, Th1 helper cells are specific for dealing with intracellular bacteria and viruses, any kind of a pathogen that hides itself inside of one of our cells. And as a result, then intracellular microbial pathogens have learned how to shut down that response by the immune systems of whatever organism that they're infecting. And they shift function away from Th1 to Th2, which makes the immune response ineffective. Th2 response is also another thing they do is it modulates Th1 production. It actually lowers a high Th1 production. So I'll get into that in a little bit when I talk more about some septic shock stuff. So, Bacal Skullcap is an absolutely marvelous cytokine modulator and it's tremendous for protecting inflammation throughout the body like inflammation in the brain from encephalitis viruses for instance. Modulates immune function quite nicely, tends to bring it up a bit if it's too low, lower it down if it's too high, and it's also a really potent synergist in that it helps facilitate the action of other herbs and even pharmaceuticals if it's taken along with it. It's become one of my really go-to herbs for working with more sophisticated stealth pathogens and chronic diseases of various sorts. Very specific for encephalitis viruses and it helps protect neural structures. It's one of the great herbs and probably one of the reasons why it's one of the hundred fundamental herbs in Chinese medicine. They're an ancient people, and they've done things for thousands of years for a reason. 
Now another great broad spectrum antiviral is Isatis. And Isatis is dear to my heart because it's an invasive botanical all around the world, all throughout Australia, the United States, through Europe. It was normally used fresh for making blue dye a long time ago, but the herb needs to be prepared dried. The plant has to be dried for the antiviral constituents to really begin to manifest themselves the most strongly. And then when it's prepared, because a lot of the activity comes from a number of polysaccharides in the plant, the best way to prepare it is to put it in cold water and then slowly bring it up to a boil and gently simmer it for about 30 minutes. And then what you do is then you, you add the alcohol to it to stabilize it so you get a hydroethanolic tincture, but that activates it most strongly. It's active for pretty much every virus that I've seen. There might be a few it's not active against, um, but it's very, very effective. The only downside of it is it's a member of the cabbage family and it tastes a lot like rather spoiled cabbage. So patient compliance is extremely difficult. So it's much better if you add it to, um, or add some other herbal tinctures to the combination, like licorice, which has quite a marvelous flavor and is naturally sweet. I try to hide it any way that I can, the flavor of it. I just can't take it, but boy, does it work. It's absolutely astonishing. And because it's invasive, people will actually pay you to take it away. And that makes it even better. You can't get rid of it, so it can be harvested all day long. It's one of the great, great antiviral invasives on the face of the earth. Now, licorice is also a very broad spectrum antiviral. It's a magnificent herb again. It has a lot of antiviral activity, has a lot of antibacterial activity. It's an immune modulator. In other words, that if your immune activity is too high, it can bring it down. If it's too low, it can bring it up. It stimulates interferon gamma production quite nicely, which helps move a Th2 back into a Th1 dynamic, making it more effective. It's like many of the broad-spectrum antivirals. It inhibits viral replication. It inhibits viral penetration of cells. It's also a very strong synergist. So it's one of the great all-around herbs. Again, I think it's better um, not as a simple or a single extract because of the side effects that can happen over time. But the best way to use it is to mix it with other things, to use it for short-term acute conditions for the most part. It's absolutely magnificent, available everywhere, and it's got what a history of three or 4,000 years of use in China, and it's absolutely one of the great world-class antivirals, very broad spectrum. Now next, there's some moderately broad spectrum antiviral herbs. One of my favorite ones there is Hutinia. Now Hutinia is, it's actually known in Chinese as fishy smelling herb or fishy tasting herb because according to a number of people it tastes like kind of bad fish. So if you combine this with Isatis, you have a very uncomfortable gustatory experience in front of you. The neat thing about Hutinia is it's a cultivar all around the world um, but it's also a great invasive. It escapes all of the time. Now in New Zealand, 
They've prohibited its import. However, it's too late. It's escaped and it's taking over much of the country. And uh, like, just like ISATIS has in Australia and in the United States, and it's invasive in about eight states now, invasive throughout much of Europe, it's a very, very great herb. And it's really good as a cytokine normalizer itself. It's active against a fair number of viruses. And it's extremely good for things like mycoplasma and Bartonella. It's one of the ones I really like. It's not as available as it should be. Oh, another great thing it's for is dengue fever. It's directly active against that particular virus. So it's one I want to see used more. And the fascinating thing is, you know, millions of people around the globe are growing it in their gardens, but they have no idea that that's what this plant can do for them. There's some really humorous stories in the United States on the internet of people that have planted this in their gardens and seriously about four years later they're trying to sell their home because the herb has taken over their entire landscaping and they can't get rid of it so it's kind of a it's a tough one once it gets going so I'm all in favor of planting it everywhere and letting it take over as much as it wants to. Now I'm going to talk a bit about elder in the Western herbal tradition, elder is no longer very well understood. It's really common to see really hysterical pronouncements about elder that you can only use the flowers and maybe the berries if you prepare them properly, but the, the stems and the bark and the root and the leaves, you'll see these big hysterical things about that they're poisonous. Well, they're not. You know, if you want to learn about poisonous plants, talk to Socrates. He knows all about them. But elder, as a matter of fact, all it does if you have a bad reaction to it is it just makes you vomit. It's a world-class emetic. Now, the fascinating thing is that, you know, the Germans have probably done the most about using elderberry as an antiviral, mostly for colds and flu. And in that sense, it's considered sort of a narrow spectrum antiviral. It's pretty good at inhibiting the influenza virus from um, being able to attach to cells and to invade those cells and replicate. But the thing is, the bark and the leaves, the stems, the root are all much more potent antivirals across a fairly broad range. It's not really as broad as some of the real broad spectrum but it's extremely good. Now in Asia, they've been using the bark and the root and the leaves for millennia without any side effects. And the real secret is to heat the, um, uh, the bark or the leaves or whatever that you're wanting to turn into medicine because that interferes with the cyanogenic compounds that are in there and makes them so that they don't cause that sort of emetic response. The fascinating thing about elder that's really important to understand as well is that the emetic response is incredibly individualistic. Now, I've seen some people just eat a few berries and vomit explosively. Other people can eat handfuls. So we've done quite a bit of provings with the tincture of the bark, the dried bark, the dried stems, tincture of the fresh leaves, tincture of the dried leaves, and we find that it's been possible for us to take oh, a teaspoon an hour for quite a while before we start getting any kind of um, nausea beginning to occur. It does seem to accumulate over time. 
Now the leaves are one of the world-class nervines. They're a lot like peach leaf. They're really good at reducing stress level and fear level and sort of calming things out. So that's a really wonderful thing to use during a lot of viral infections because people get a lot of anxiety with some of those when they're sick. It's very common. So you can actually work to a certain extent with the fresh leaf tincture or dried leaf tincture without heating. The stem bark or the stems, the bark of the tree itself can be used made dried, normal one to five kind of a tincture ratio. And for a lot of people, they won't get any nausea from that either. But if you really want to get into large dosages, which you can, um, you just basically create a decoction. Now, the Asians have been using this for a long time, especially in Southeast Asia, but as well in China. And what they do is they'll take one ounce of the bark, for instance, and they'll put it in three cups of water, and then they'll bring it to a boil, start it in cold water, and then they will, which is really important, um, because it's a lot more effective at reducing or altering those cyanogenic compounds if you start it with cold water. And then what happens is they'll slow cook it uncovered until the three cups of water is reduced to one cup, then they'll strain and drink. One of the amazing things about elder bark or elder stem prepared that way is that it stimulates repair of bone incredibly fast and so you'll get healing of broken bones or reversal of osteoporosis in an incredibly fast rate compared to not using it at all. It's one of the great undiscovered uses of elder. Nevertheless, when you prepare it like this as well and then stabilize it with alcohol 25% or so and then you take it for viral diseases, it's got a pretty good range of antiviral response and there's just been not enough research on it but it's one of the great undiscovered herbs of the Western um, herbal tradition. A thousand years ago elder was used much more broadly than it is now. All of the parts of the plant were used because they understood how to use it. It was only about 1900 or so that this hysteria about it being a poisonous plant was disseminated and it sort of got into all of the books that we use and into our consciousness and so we began to become afraid of the plant and we backed off from it but it's actually there's a reason why it was considered a primary panacea for most diseases in the western herbal tradition in Europe and it's really up to us I think to begin to reclaim our knowledge of that plant and to expand its use. Okay, now the two best narrow-spectrum antivirals that I know of, of those two, the first one is ginger. Now, ginger has been used for thousands and thousands of years. What I do is I juice the ginger root, the fresh root, and you get all of this magnificent, incredibly potent ginger juice then to use it. Now, I think it's one of the best things made for influenza, for colds, it's directly active against the influenza virus and it is probably the most directly active herb for influenza. So I put about an ounce of the fresh juice in a large mug and then I add a little cayenne, a squeeze of lime, some honey and fill it up maybe with about eight or nine ounces of water 
and then drink it and I'll do three to six cups of that during the day. It hardly ever fails to knock out an influenza um, infection. It's just really reliable, really good. Stimulates sweating, which helps lower the fever. It expands the um, blood vessel diameter, so you get really fast circulation of all the compounds through the body. It's highly systemic, very, very effective. And if you get those kind of colds and chills that happens often with uh, influenza, it warms you up quite nicely. All the way around, world-class influenza herb, best that there is. Now the last one that I like to use a lot is Lomatium. Lomatium is an indigenous herb to North America. It was used by the indigenous cultures here for thousands of years. There's a lot of different kinds, but uh, most of the time people use the Lomatium that's called Lomatium. The root is what's used. The roots need to be fairly old. When they're young, they're used actually as a food substance and they don't begin to produce the really potent essential oils that are so good for antiviral um, effects until much later in their life. During the 1918 influenza epidemic in the United States, the people that used Lomatium had very, very few people that died. Most people got well. The indigenous cultures used it broadly at that time. It's got a very strong flavor. It's a member of the celery family. It's got a bit of a celery taste to it. A lot of people don't like it because it's so strong, but it's really one of my favorite ones. Um, I found as I get older and my immune system is getting older, immune senescence, they call it. Not that I enjoy it no matter what you call it, but in any event, the thing is I've found that as I've gotten older, I need more complex formulations. When I was younger in my 20s and 30s, early 40s, I would use, just for influenza, I would use a straight blend of uh, Echinacea angustifolia, redroot, and licorice. That would tend to knock it out every time. But once I hit about 55, it wasn't so effective for me, so I switched over to Lomatium as being the primary ingredient in that formulation. And man, it works a treat. It's extremely effective, extremely good. It's probably one of the best herbs directly effective for um, colds and flu, and it's, it's just great. Now, the one potential side effect from Lomation that you must understand is that some people make tinctures from the fresh root. Now, that's fine, but you should never, ever, ever take fresh root tinctures by themselves. For a certain percentage of people, perhaps as many as 10% of those who take it, it causes this nasty red rash. Your whole body turns a bright red. It's not itchy. You just look terrible. You don't want to go outside. And if you panic and go to the doctor, the hospital, they'll explain to you why you should never use natural medicines because they're dangerous, even though they don't know anything about them. It's just this sort of weird side effect that some people get. Nothing will make it go away except time. You can use all kinds of corticosteroid creams or anything. They will only make it worse. You don't want to do that. Just don't look in the mirror for a week and quit using it. And after a while it will fade. And then you will too have learned never, ever, ever take it as a single picture by itself. People that use the dried root where it's combined with other herbs, have, I've never seen that effect. 
but that's just good to know that this can occur if you use it unwisely. Now almost all viral diseases present similarly as a case of the flu and that's mostly because our body starts producing interferons which is what gives us that kind of achy feeling the fevers our body produces because viruses don't often like to live in a hotter environment. So viruses all sort of present the same way. Now, one of the great herbs to use in virtually any viral infection is bone set. Bone set's a really good herb if you have your hot, then you're chilled, you're hot, you're chilled, you're sweating. You kind of get better than you relapse, you get better than you relapse. Bone set is tremendously effective for that. Now it's best made as a hot tea and consumed. It's really bitter, so I usually add a lot of honey to it. Um, but it's really, really effective for that kind of dynamic if you ever experience that. Plus, it's pretty good at stimulating white blood cell production in the immune system. It's also very specific for treating dengue fever. It's um, actually very effective against a number of the serotypes that dengue has and um, just a very good herb all the way around for that. Now another neat thing for treating viral infections is if you begin raising immune function or getting immune modulators that will help even maybe immune adaptogens if you want to think about it that way. Now astragalus is extremely good for that. Um, because a number of these like antiviral or immune herbs that I'm going to suggest for viral infections, they also tend to have some antiviral activity themselves. Astragalus has got a moderately broad range of activity against viruses. So if you get one that's got antiviral activity, plus it modulates immune function, it's really great. Astragalus is an extremely good one. Another excellent one is rhodiola which, and of course, you know, rhodiola has become this amazing thing. If you take one drop of rhodiola, you'll live to be millions of years old and you'll never be unhealthy. You know, it's like, but only if you get the rhodiola harvested up near the Arctic Circle by fasting Russian virgins who harvest it during the Northern Lights. You know, there's a lot of hype about this stuff, but really basically any rhodiola will do just fine. They're all pretty much similar in their activity. And the other extremely good herb along this range is cordyceps. Cordyceps is an absolutely phenomenal herb to use. It's extremely good as an immune modulator. Um, it's got some antibacterial activity of its own. Um, and I'm just extremely partial to it. Now, a number of these viral infections, dengue can do it, uh, the whole range of encephalitis viruses can do it, is that they get into the central nervous system and they begin to cause problems in the brain and central nervous system. They cause quite a bit of inflammation in the brain. And so what you need to do is to begin to protect brain structures by reducing the cytokine cascade and lowering the inflammation in the brain. And one of the really great herbs for this is kudzu. Kudzu is a world-class invasive. It's taken over much of the southern United States. And interestingly enough, I consider it perfect because it improves brain function. And people in the United States are hoping that the southern 
portions of this country will actually improve their brain function. So, but kudzus also works really well because it, it interferes with certain pain receptors in the brain. So like with diabetic neuropathy, which is difficult to treat, kudzu is pretty good at lowering that pain dynamic there. It's an extremely excellent herb for that. It lowers inflammation. It protects mitochondrial structures and other brain structures. So it's extremely specific for any kind of encephalitis of viral origin or really any other origin. Um, come to think of it. Uh, Japanese knotweed root, another great invasive, is extremely good for protecting um, the brain from inflammation, protecting neural structures. Extremely excellent for that. Both of these herbs cross the blood-brain barrier quite nicely. Um, Bakel skullcap is really, really good at protecting neural structures in the brain from inflammation as well. So whenever you're starting to get any of that, it often shows up as a really stiff neck, which is um, kind of a symbol of meningitis often. Uh, the meninges around the brain begin to inflame. You start to get these certain kind of specific headaches. It's common in the flu and a number of other viral infections. Um, knotweed is really specific for that. Kudzu can really help it. Bakel skullcap, cordyceps, all of these are extremely good for that. Another great herb to keep in mind is motherwort, Leonaris cardiaca. Most people just think of motherwort really as sort of for heart problems. That's what it's best known for. It's also a pretty good relaxant. Um, uh, I particularly like it for that, helping sleep disorders, for instance. Um, which brings me back a little bit to Chinese skullcap, which is extremely high in melatonin. So one of the things it does is if you've got a lot of sleep problems, um, waking up a lot in the night, Chinese skullcap can really help normalize that sleep dynamic because of how much melatonin it supplies. Uh, motherwort can help sleep a lot. If you take it before you go to bed, about a half an hour before, I'll take oh, a couple of tablespoons. It's really great in water normally. But the other thing motherwort is extremely good for is that it's highly protective of mitochondrial structures in the body and in the brain so that a lot of times when people get these kind of diseases and if they go sort of chronic, you'll get a lot of severe fatigue. One of the neat things that motherwort does is it begins to protect and then help regenerate the mitochondrial structures, helping them be more um, vital and so you'll start to get a return of energy if you use it over time. It's sort of a tonic herb for mitochondria. It's really great that way. Now another thing to understand, one of the reasons why the 1918 flu was so devastating, most people don't understand this, is that it was a hemorrhagic fever very much like Ebola. And what that basically does is it causes the body to just sort of bleed out in the hospitals at that time, um, after the people came back, it was really from World War I, all of the people in the trenches got sick. They were loaded onto ships at the end of the war. They were sent all around the world and basically took those infections back everywhere. And the whole world came down with it. About 300 million people on Earth became sick. About 50 million of them died. It was much worse than what happened in the war. The doctors and the nurses and the morticians were the first to die because they were the frontline people. 
The hospitals were li literally awash in blood, ankle deep in some instances from how many people were sick. So what that dynamic is, whether it's Ebola, whether it's the flu, whether it's certain sort of encephalitis, whether it's dengue fever, a lot of these things, Babesia, they can go hemorrhagic. And what that is, it's, it's called septic shock. And it's a fascinating kind of dynamic that happens. So it's almost as if what happens that these organisms, because they're intracellular, they shut down the Th1 response and activate Th2. And so it's like the body keeps trying to activate that Th1 dynamic, keeps trying, 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 trying. And then for some reason, in a certain percentage of the people that are ill, it's almost as if the Th2 dynamic completely collapses and then you have this massive Th1 response that just literally overwhelms the entire system. And what you get is what's called a cytokine storm, not just a cytokine cascade, and it just overwhelms the entire body. All of the organs begin to fail and then you just get this massive bleed out through all of the orifices in the body and complete organ failure and then the person goes into shock and that they die. So what happens during a cytokine storm when that Th1 dynamic just shoots up, it just can't be stopped? Technological medicine is extremely poor at dealing with that, but what you get is there's this, this particular substance that's produced called HMGB1-HMGB1. It's got some ridiculous long name that's an acronym. It's like a high mobility group box protein one or something like that. It means absolutely nothing to me. But in any event, that particular substance and a number of others, a neutrophil elastase and another thing called NETS, these things create this kind of cycle that produce cytokines in massive concentrations that just overwhelm the body. There's very little treatment for that in the technological world, but it turns out there's a number of herbal medicines that are extremely good for treating that. So that when anybody starts progressing into very severe, acute forms of these diseases where they're going into sepsis or septic shock, then you can use these interventions that will really help. There's been some tremendous in vivo studies where they will infect um, various different kinds of animals with the 1918 flu, for instance, and they'll send them into septic shock. And then they use these herbal interventions that will completely turn it around, no matter what animal it's used with. The Chinese have been very good at exploring this and using it for treatment there. So... Oddly enough, it's two herbs that people in the West rarely think of as having this kind of potency. Um, the first one is Angelica sinensis, Dong Kwai. It's got, you know, it's mostly used in the West to normalize female menstrual irregularities, to deal with PMS, to help normalize reproductive function. But it's got an absolutely phenomenal effect on the production of HMGB1 to reduce those levels and to move people out of a septic shock dynamic, especially if it's combined with astragalus. So they were using kind of a 
Astragalus Angelica combination. The dosage is extremely high. Now I'm going to talk about um, four groups, four tincture combinations to use all together to treat this. Um, the dosage range is a tablespoon of tincture each hour. What you have to do is you have to get these tincture combinations in the body in really high dosage levels so they begin circulating in the blood. You have to literally bathe the entire body in these substances to begin to reduce the cytokine cascade and get it back so that it, it's so modulated that the body sort of clicks back into normal healthy function. So that's the first one that's used. Now the second one that is absolutely magnificent for this is salvia, um, Dan Shen Red Sage. It's um, very, very potent. It's an endocrine, no, sorry, it is a cytokine modulator and normalizer. Very, very effective. Again, a tablespoon each hour. Very, very good for this. Um, the third one that's really interesting to use for this is kudzu and cordyceps. Kudzu, it turns out, is really active for that HMGB1 um, substance that's created in the body. It's pretty good for dealing with um, neutrophil elastase and nets as well. That combined with cordyceps, they're a really good modulator, especially if you've got severe encephalitis, but that is really, really dynamic as well. Again, a tablespoon each hour. So this series of talks is just really a very simple overview of a really complex topic. If you want to know more, you can look at this book on herbal antivirals or this book on herbal antibiotics. There's a tremendous amount of depth in both of those on the plants used for the diseases these organisms can cause and a lot of fascinating information on the diseases and the bacteria and viruses themselves.